John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily this morning. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly the sound like a blowing violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They each saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The word of the Lord. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Um, Most of us are familiar with the gift of the Spirit that comes in what I just read from Acts 2, which is this miraculous time in which after Jesus has um, spoken to the disciples and says to wait, that they wait, and, and what happens is the Spirit overcomes on this day of Pentecost, and people speak in tongues, and tongues of fire fall on them, and Um, Peter gives a sermon and 5,000 people are saved and it says they lived in unity and shared everything in common and since then the church has been always like that with no errors or problems living in perfect unity dedicated to the breaking of the bread with miraculous signs every Sunday when we meet together sadly in some ways that hasn't been the case But that is the way in which the Spirit sort of appears in the telling in Luke-Acts, that that it comes fully in this moment at Pentecost. And that's perhaps the one we're the most familiar with. For those um, who aren't aware, today is Pentecost Sunday. So we celebrated the resurrection time um, for 49 days, and then the disciples are back together 50 days later in Jerusalem, and this is when we celebrate that coming of the Spirit. Um, So today is Pentecost. Next Sunday is Trinity Sunday, um, in which we uh, don't acknowledge the Trinity one Sunday out of the year, but take one Sunday to sort of um, remind ourselves of that language. And I would say that narratively, we'll talk about this more next week, it makes sense in that like we walk with Jesus um, as he sort of teaches us and reveals this one to us as fathers and speaks to this one, this coming spirit, the spirit that resides in him. And so as all that's been revealed, we take the time to sort of take in the glory that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that is next Sunday. And then at the Sunday after that, we start the book of Job for the summer. Uh, uh, some people are excited. Um, one of my friends said, So wait, you're really going to ruin everybody's summer by 
preaching through the book of Job. And I said, well, here's the deal. Last summer we did Ecclesiastes, and I don't think it gets worse than that. Um, Leviticus, yeah, well, that one went on for way too long. That was part of the problem there. Um, so I shouldn't, yes. Um, so that's the story of Pentecost we're familiar with, this miraculous one, this, this one in which all these powers sort of descends on the Spirit. And Peter says this thing, which I think is, is quite profound, which is, in those last days, God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. There's this way in which the Spirit enables the disciples to see that in those last days is being fulfilled now. And the Spirit is poured out on all people. Um, Jesus, Peter then doesn't recount sort of what the Spirit does. This is the temptation, I think, sometimes in modern churches. But he recounts who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And sort of an interesting um, telling of the story of Israel as well. Um, that that's what he's thrown into at that moment. And so that's what we come this Sunday to sort of um, celebrate, to take in, to recount and remember. But what's interesting is, is what Ray read for us is there's a different telling of the coming of the Spirit in John's Gospel. Now, for those of you who remember, we left off right before this scene on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, we read right all the way up to this. And the assumption is the disciples now are locked in an upper room, whether they've received the news from Mary or not about having confronted the risen Lord in the garden, that they are locked in there with fear. And one of the the things I want to say in today's sermon is that John's telling of Pentecost, I think, reshapes for us, uh, re-narrates for us what the experience of church is like. So often, and to say that we don't have church experiences like Acts 2 would be to deny some sense of what the Spirit can do in our lives. Um, but so often, I think we try to make Acts 2 our permanent church experience, and that leads to letdown, frustration, continually seeking highs, continuing trying to manufacture those moments, this type of thing. Um, what John does is he narrates it in a different way. What's noticeably different about John's telling, too, is... Um, Jesus is more the primary actor. Um, the Spirit comes in Acts 2 at the will of Jesus and the Father. But in John, 19, or John 20, um, it's clearly that Jesus here is sort of more um, the one who's breathing out the Spirit. Now, one of the things I, I want to say, too, is that um, most of us are familiar when we think of the end of John's Gospel with the scene that comes next with Doubting Thomas. Now, depending on your Bible... That scene begins with the saying, eight days later. Um, I don't know. David, does it say eight days later in your Bible? Uh, the one right after we start, ended with today. So let's see. 24. Eight days later. It says that next week. Yeah, that's a helpful one. Oh, yeah, it's not 24. It's later than that. Sorry. 26, yes. A week later in the house, eight days later in the house, what's it say at 26? After eight days, there we go. What I want to clarify there on the after eight days is it is a week later. The uh, calendar that they're using or the series of numbers they're using does not have a zero. So eight days later is another Sunday. 
Does that make sense? Is that they go from one Sunday to the next Sunday. This is, in John's way, I think of reframing why the church begins to cherish Sunday as its holy day. This is often lost on us, but one of the things that's miraculous about the early church and its movement is it goes from this worship on Saturday, which was uh, the Sabbath, which was pinnacle to all of Jewish faith. And because of what happens in the resurrection, in this eighth day of new creation, this new dawn, this new thing, everything begins to move to Sunday. There's the, that's the earliest hint of that, is we have the morning, Easter morning with Mary. We have the evening uh, with the disciples, which we're going to talk about today. But even then, when Jesus reappears to the disciples, it says eight days later, which <laughs> if you're very literal like me, Monday, um, but if you're following the calendar, which most of our Bibles have caught up with, it's a week later. It's another Sunday that they're gathered again. And so part of what I want to say um, is that, that the disciples' pattern here, starting with this Sunday, which I think is true and can be traced into our world and our lives, is they gather because of fear. There is so much fear in the modern world. There's so much unknown. The disciples gather together. Um, behind a locked door. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what happens is, is the risen Christ comes and pronounces peace there. That we have this way of, of sort of coming to church here and beginning to hear, we start with the psalm every Sunday, but that sense of peace. And peace is one of those things, um, we'll talk about fear and peace more in a second, but it's um, both weaponized in the modern world and um, made a commodity. Um, peace is, is both weaponized in certain ways to say, you know, are we working for peace, this, that, and the other, is what happening in our, our city's peace or not? Uh, what does peace look like? And it becomes this way in which we're always sort of challenging each other around it. Um, or it becomes a commodity, you know. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, I think, is probably the best at this. You never see a pharmaceutical commercial, no matter what it's for, that doesn't represent <laughs> some sense of peace, which is interesting because it's at least from my perspective, part of the reason you would need whatever pharmaceutical is being offered is because you're not at peace. Um, and so half the time, at least for me, I have to look up what diagnosis they're talking about because whatever illness or, or trial this person is experiencing doesn't exist in the commercial. They're just riding beautifully on bikes, um, lounging in gardens, um, uh, sitting in bathtubs, um, outdoors. They're living these perfect, uh, peaceful lives that this industry is promising to people. And then you want to know what's wrong, better Google that up. Although interesting, they do cover at least side effects include na -na 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 -na. <laughs> um, very quickly. And then, on to, and then, of course, no pictures of said side effects, which is another interesting thing of, um, of the pharmaceutical industry. So that's a fun one. Um, but, but both these uh, fear and peace have different sort of places in our world. Um, but we proclaim that, and the Lord comes to the center of them, that the disciples are gathered around them. This is why we meet around the table here, that God comes and meets us in the table, that the table is sort of this place. And so at our church, we come and meet here around this table. And what happens is the disciples are overjoyed. I hope that our service, our worship, and the worship that the church has, has one of experience of joy within it. Joy, not happiness, 
Joy not always ecstatic, but some joy of being together, gathered around the Lord. What happens is his peace is spoken again by Jesus, and he shows the wounds, which is um, another aspect in which we confess to one who reveals his wounds to us. But then what happens is they are sent out. First, the Father sent me, I am sending you. Our service, now, there was a, a church planning curriculum I did that said gathered and scattered, that the people would gather for worship and then scatter out into the world to go and do miraculous witness to God, do all these things. And I was like, it would be better to say sent. Scattered is in gospel language what happens when the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. We, as we end our service, are not scattered. We are sent as the Father um, sent his Son into the world. That, that as Jesus, and this is, I think, one of the most amazing things, is Jesus is sent by the Father to go to the godless. The disciples and Christians who gather every Sunday, who are um, blessed and then sent out, are sent to go to the godless. And in that, the mission that we're given is this mission of forgiveness, which ends this passage. To forgive and to retain. And that, I think, is another thing in which we, we'll go through all these separately, but um, that we go as ambassadors of forgiveness. As we go as ambassadors about what does it mean to be reconciled? And what most notably, we'll get to this at the end, but sin in John's gospel, for the most part, is unbelief. We go as ambassadors of belief. That what we've done in worship and seen in the Lord and had peace proclaimed to us twice. We go as ambassadors of that into the modern world. So that's a quick overview for today. The one thing I want to say that ties into our last sermon series, and we'll talk a little bit maybe more about it on Trinity Sunday, is that all these things are eccentric to the people. We talked about how our existence is eccentric outside of ourselves last week. The peace does not come from inside the disciple, but is pronounced from the outside. The Spirit is breathed on them. It is not innately found in the inside of the disciple. Um, the news of the resurrection of this living one is not one that's dreamed up, but is one that was revealed by the God who appears from them. So much of what we try, I think, to do in the modern world is manufacture our own senses of self, of who we are, to find and make our own peace, to find and make our own forgiveness or unforgiveness, to find and conquer fear in our own ways. And what's revealed in this passage is it comes from outside of us. Jesus and the Spirit are announced and blessed upon them, but they're not um, things in which we manufacture or make ourselves. Talking with Ryan and Jack as we approached Baptism Sunday last week, one of the things that I think resonated for all three of us was the way in which the Gospels, particularly Jesus, uses so much organic process to describe how life is and less and less mechanical process. We live in such a, a mechanical universe, a, such a, or uh, two types of universes, what, but one in which like, we, I need to make something of myself. 
I need to rise to the challenge. I need to do this. When in fact, what happens is somebody appears from the outside, namely the risen Lord, and announces peace. The disciples didn't go out to make peace in themselves. It came from outside of them. I think that's one of the keys to that last sermon series is how much... um, it's, a, it's hard because so much of what we think of as what's important about us was left off. So much of what we think about how the world has oriented intimately is not actually the first thing about us. God has created us, that we live on borrowed breath. That God is going to consummate us with his spirit, and so we live on borrowed time. That we have been redeemed, reconciled by another's death. And so we live by another's death. We respond to each of those in the practices of faith, hope, and love is that these are all things that tell us who we are that God does outside of us. Um, and those things are sort of um, a change for us. Um, but as we go through the passage today, I want to follow the outline from um, Frederick Dale Bruner. Frederick Dale Bruner is one of the commentators I followed on John. Um, And while I don't often or always agree or preach what he says, he is brilliant at dividing up passages. I mean, if you look at the way he divides this one into five things, movements with five verses with these amazing titles, um, a lot of my friends from seminary have beautifully titled sermons um, or wonderfully interestingly titled sermons. If you look at the bulletin every week, the title of my sermon is Sermon. Um, like They took a class I didn't take. Um, uh, I did not get the titling your sermon, sermon class. Um, Frederick Dale Bruner, uh, I think he's in his 80s or 90s now, is not hip enough to have done that. But he is great at dividing up these passages. And so all that to say, I didn't come up with this. I like to give credit where credit is due. But I think it gives a wonderful outline to walk through this. Uh, My outline was the church service one. Um, For the rest of this, we'll follow um, Bruner's outline. The first movement in verse 19. On evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors were locked for fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. They locked in a room because of fear. Locked in a room because of what's fearful on the outside. Um, They lock themselves away. And fear, even today, has this way of sort of locking ourselves away. For instance, if you're scared at night, and you're a little fearful of something that might have happened that day, you don't unlock all your doors, (laughs) leave them wide open, and go to bed peacefully. Although for exposure therapy, that might be worth doing. <laughs> uh, I'd never thought about that before, and now I'm terrified that I might have to try it. Um, but the point being is, um, fear is this way, I think, often of making the small soul smaller. Um, we close ourselves in. We think we can control. And what's, what's amazing about this sort of world we live in today is that the fear can come from the inside. What's going on with my body? What's going on with my mind? What's going on with my kids? What's going on with all this? What's all this access in life? And then that fear from the outside. I mean, uh, I was talking to a friend of a friend at the park, um, and we were uh, 
just having trouble recounting which act of violence in the world we were talking about, because we were both talking about different ones. Um, staggering to live in a world like that, um, to think, oh, this, this instance, and to think you're talking about the same and go, oh, I was talking about something else horrible that happened to people. Um, fear can come in that way, and I worry, um, partially for my own soul, I think, to some degree, and how often fear can really come in those ways and make you begin to question things, um, and make, you, make you smaller, uh, make, your, make your soul collapse inside itself. What happens is Jesus is not bound by the door. Um, now, there's all sorts of things that, that questions that commentators raise and sort of like, how does Jesus get into the room if the door is locked? Which the first thing I often think of is like, no matter how secure a room is, I'm always shocked at the way people find in. I mean, it's, it's this human ingenuity to think like, I have locked it all down. There's no way anybody else can get in. And you wake up and the back door is blown open by wind because you thought you locked it. Um, or something like that. Like, this is, I think, part of our obsession with technology being revealed here in primitive form in the disciples is like, look, we've secured all the entrances and exits. Everything is perfectly safe. That's often a lie. Um, that's one of the ways in which we know we're getting smaller in the world, is that we think we finally found a way to control all the ways of getting into this room. But I think the second teaching is, is that... Um, Jesus in his resurrected state is not limited by closed doors. He's not limited by the things that we think we can use to lock out what's going to happen. And the last is in John's gospel, the good shepherd finds his sheep. The good shepherd knows where his sheep are, and he's able to go and find them. And so he announces peace upon them. We talked a little bit about that, that piece before. Earlier in John's Gospel, all this I have spoken while you were still with me, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom we mark today, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all the things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Again, outside of the self. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace I leave with you and peace I give you. Here he comes and announces that peace that he promised with the Holy Spirit. And it is his peace that comes for us. This one who was able to live radically free in the world. This one who was able to um, live confidently in the way in which the Father had ordered and designed things and to not live in competition with everything else, to not live in domination, to not live in all the patterns that lead to distortion. That's the peace that he leaves us. And I don't know um, what in the first century I do not give you, uh, I do not give it to you as the world gives. My guess is peace today is often a peace that comes with violence or in that time and still today. If the world gives peace, it's because it's extinguished everything else that threatens peace, which inevitably will lead to the extinguishment of yourself in some ways. Um, uh, I don't know if anybody, maybe there's people who feel at peace enough that if people just, but in, in the end, oftentimes, like, the final place that disrupts peace is myself. Um, the peace has to be armed and sort of dominated in this way, but 
Christ gives peace in a different way. And this I want to draw that connection to the commodification of peace. The world gives peace in a manipulated way or in an augmented way or in a promised way. Um, take these pills, use these drugs, get this shot, do this thing, purchase these goods, um, order your life in such a way, um, and you shall have peace. Um, there's a famous NBA player, well, this just came to mind, but uh, who has multiple uh, bank accounts, it's tons of them, uh, with exactly $150,000 in them because that's what the FDIC insures, which I just think is amazing that he thought of that, but also like um, that's exactly how we would think of peace. How could I have the most peace? I need to make sure that everything is 150 even because that's what's insured. As if if all the banks failed, anybody would come and help you. Sorry to ruin your day if you think. Uh, but anyways, um, the peace he gives is different than that. Um, Pascal has this saying that most of man's problems come from the fact that he can't sit in a room silently alone. Um, Christ gives us a peace that I think hopefully enables something beyond the need to always be consuming, making, and creating. Movement 2, I believe. Yeah, verse 20. Um, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is the last Sunday, uh, or is, is Pentecost Sunday, so yesterday was the last day of Easter season. But in some sense, the Christ who comes to visit us is the one who is recognized by his wounds in some sense. The Christ is revealed in his woundedness here. And it's weird that he shows them this, and at that they are overjoyed. But if we think about it, I think it begins to make sense because they saw him last as the wounded one, as the one who had been crucified, as the one whom they knew was dead. To have him appear in your midst and proclaim peace means that whatever happened is no longer out there to fear. Whatever conquered him that you saw has been vanquished. That the ugly head of death and crucifixion and estrangement, and it's human estrangement that crucifies Jesus Christ, all the ways in which we defigure that brings it to that point, that is gone because his risen body is here. If doors don't hold him back, neither do wounds in some sense. And with the wounds, um, like our wounds too at times, have ways of testifying to that we survived, that we've made it through. The Christ's wounds um, testify to that those things are no longer bound over him, that he has pushed past that reality. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus tells them that you will be sad too, but then you will have joy. Here are the disciples gathered in fear and sadness, and joy overcomes them in this moment. Revelation of the risen Lord being as joy for them. Like I said, we center ourselves in that way in this church around that Lord. We eat of this feast, as we say, until he comes again. Um, the CEB translation has one of my favorite uh, ways of saying it is that we broadcast his death until he comes again. We proclaim 
it in that way. The great mission uh, to be little Christ, to be Christians. And Jesus said again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. We, and the Spirit is what enables this. So if you break it down too slow, the next verse is the Spirit. So uh, don't think it's us without the Spirit just because Dale Bruner, in his brilliance, did not put them together. He, we're, we're quite aware that the next verse is part of the thing that empowers us to go on this mission. But the great mission is to go forth as these ones. Like I said, Christ comes sent by the Father to go to the unreconciled, the estranged, the lost, and to bring them into reconciliation, redemption, and goodness. That That is the mission he came, and so we go as sent ones of that. We are not scattered. We are not lost. We are ones whom Christ has sent into the world. And this sentness is everydayness. Um, when we talked about the quotidian in the last sermon series, the ordinary, the this, there's no other place in which this is happening other than in our everydayness. My last church, there were several people who grew up in um, a different sort of evangelical space than I did, but they were all very worried that they weren't missionaries, that missionaries were doing the real work. That is not what Jesus says here. He doesn't say, look, some of you will go off to Africa and some of you will stay here and it's your job to fund the ones who are sent like the Father sent the Father, but the rest of you stay, don't do anything. Um, Instead, his teaching is that all of us are sent as the way in which he was sent into the world. That's not to say, don't have missions, don't support this. It's just to say that there is no way out of that we are all participating in the sentness in our everydayness. Um, there's not another plane on which you are supposed to be this way. Um, He announces that peace again. Um, And what that means as they go forward in this mission. The quote on the back of the bulletin is from Frederick Buechner. It's one um, that sustained uh, my faith during a weird time earlier, and then I found it again this week, um, and I was like, uh, not as good as I remember it, which is maybe often happens to you as you have these memories of these things in which you would read and read and then you go away. Uh, but I share it because it was important for that time and I'll read the, the fullness of it. It comes from a book, Speak What We Feel, Not What We Ought to Say, in which he goes through the works of Chester, or work of Chesterton, a work of Shakespeare, a work of Mark Twain, and a work of uh, G.M. Hopkins, a poet. I'll read a little bit longer than what's up there. There is sadness, too, in thinking how much more I might have done with my life than just writing. He wrote 31 books. He died this past year. Especially considering that I was, not, or I was, that I was ordained not only to preach the good news to the poor, but to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the imprisoned, and raise the dead. If I make it as far as St. Peter's Gate, the most I will be able to plead is my 32 books. And if that is not enough, I am lost. My faith has never been threatened as agonizingly as Chesterton's or Hopkins or simply abandoned like Twain's or held in such perilous uh, tension with the unfaith of, of Shakespeare's. I have never looked into the abyss for which I am thankful, but I wish such faith as I had had been brighter and gladder. I wish I had done more with it. I wish I had been braver and bolder. I wish I had been a saint. This, in short, is the weight of my own sad times. And listening to these four voices speaking out from the burden of theirs has been to find not just a kind of temporary release, 
but an unexpected encouragement. Take heart, I heard them say, even at the unlikeliest moments. Fear not. Be alive, be merciful, be human. And most unlikely of all, even when you can't believe, even if you don't believe at all, even if you shy away at the sound of his name, be Christ. Uh, the challenge to go forth is sent ones. Uh, to be Christ in these agonizing and trying times. But that is not all. We received the gift of the Spirit, the primary thing in which we mark today, that which is breathed upon us, that comes from outside of us. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For me, it has been kind of a prayer this week as I've been thinking about this passage. It's one that I hope I continue to pray uh, often is to, to pray for that to be breathed on me. Um, to have that spirit breathed into our lives by Jesus from the outside. Um, to pray for that reality to become present for us. The Christ spirit is breathed onto me. And so much we use this phrase non-anxious presence often, but it implies that we can live as anxious presences in the modern world. I am not good at living as a non-anxious presence, but if I ask for that to be breathed on me, that peace and that goodness, I might have the possibility to do so. The psalm that we read for this morning was often the slogan I sort of used for that. Um, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor are my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forever and ever. When we went through the Psalms of Ascent, this quickly became one of my favorite Psalms, which is Psalm 120 to 134, I believe. Um, Neither do I concern myself with great matters nor things too profound for me. I'm the only person in the modern world who has so many opinions about great matters and things too profound for me. Uh, was that, that's, uh, being concerned and thinking like that is like having a belly button. We all got it. Like the, um, it's just sort of, that's the way in which we live as these sort of non-anxious things. But to have the Spirit proclaimed in our lives, to have our souls quieted within us. Gary Hagen, um, uh, the Atlantic, wrote a profile of the guy who's, who runs or used to run in his international justice mission. But one of the things they wrote through the, the thing was like, he's a great guy, this, that, and the other, but he makes his workers start with 30 days of silence to order their inner selves. How, what a beautiful and great thing. He said it sustains them in their work. I mean, if you're not familiar, um, the International Justice Mission works with sex trafficking. This 30 minutes to, to quiet themselves, to still themselves, to, to bring themselves, is what sustains them in confronting some of the worst truths we can confront in the world. 30 minutes may seem like a lot, but we could start with five or two or ten and begin up from there. Because there's so much that clamors for us to have eyes that are lofty, 
to concern ourselves with great matters, to have the proper opinion on the truths that are too profound for me, to take some time to ask for this spirit to breathe on you and for life to be brought into that way um, would be a gift for all of us, I think. And then the great privilege, the priesthood of believers. Um, if, anyone's, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This caused a lot of, um, lots of com comments in the, uh, the commentary because it's like, how could this be true? Um, which it has this way in which we're extending Christ's mission. We don't actually do the forgiving. But what I find interesting is we pray the Lord's Prayer very often as believers. Um, forgive us our sins as we for forgive the sins of others. Um, it's something we're always saying. Forgive the sins of others. Um, to be a voice of absolution in the world. I, I mention it often, but we live in a world that is always wanting uh, confession. Confess that you've done wrong. Confess that you're a part of, of um, systems of oppression. Confess that you're um, a damager of the environment. Confess these things. But what happens, and it was several thinkers have pointed this out, but what happens is it becomes unsustainable because no absolution is ever offered. Keep confessing, but no absolution is ever offered. What's often offered is action. Go and do something. Um, which brings us back to fear and peace, I think, but the neuroticism of the modern world. The ability to be an, an anxious presence, I guess, too. If I'm always worried about what I might have to confess next and what I might have to do next, there is no absolution. There is no peace. There is no release. And it's clear, I think, oftentimes that we live in a world that is often demanding that of ourselves. I've mentioned it before, but that sin um, in John's gospel is the absence of faith um, is, is a place uh, disbelief. Um, we go forward as sent ones as the as, let's, a phrase I like, I don't know where it came from, uh, the plausibility structures that forgiveness is true, that our church offers forgiveness. We're a people of absolution. And the retention then, what he says, is if, if you do not forgive them, they, uh, they're not forgiven, is in some sense if they are unable to become into belief is the tension there. Um, if they're able to resist belief. But I don't think that's still for us. We go as ones who does this and we are witnesses of that. The mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the reconciliation of, uh, to the triune God reconciling all things to himself. It's on the back of the bulletin every week. To be a witness to that reconciliation. Um, we go forward as that, as ones who believe, as one who have that peace within us, so that our souls, in an anxious and fearful age, can be quieted, forgiveness can be received, and absolution can be offered from the one who offers it to us by the power of his spirit. Let us pray. God, through your spirit, you have called forth a people where there were no people. 
you have called us for, in the words of Corinthians, our confession of faith that Christ is Lord is even prompted by the Spirit from outside of us. God, we ask today, as we should ask every Sunday, breathe your Spirit into this place. Pronounce your peace into our world and into our lives. Pronounce your forgiveness into this space. Enable that transformation within us as you speak these words, as you be for us in this way, so that we too may go forth in the pattern of the way in which you were sent by the Father, that we may leave as sent ones to the glory of your name. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.